Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to Club Book with Michelle Zahner. My name is Kaylin Creason. I'm a librarian at Washington County Libraries, uh, and I'm here to moderate Club Book today. Uh, before I introduce our author, Michelle, properly, let me tell you a bit about the unique series bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Washington County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Uh, thanks also to partnering bookshelf Red Balloon, Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Michelle Zahner is a darling of the modern indie music scene, better known by fans under her solo project alias Japanese Breakfast. Zahner's family moved to the U.S. from South Korea when she was just nine months old. She spent her formative years as one of the one of only a handful of Asian American students in her Eugene, Oregon neighborhood and school, Oregon. <laughs> the young songwriter grappled with her own sense of Koreanness then and continued her journey of self-discovery while attending college and finding her footing in the East Coast music scene. Zahner fronted the Philadelphia-based rock band Little Big League from 2011 to 2014 before her mother's unexpected cancer diagnosis compelled her to return home to Oregon. During this time, Zahner began to compose and record solo music, including the acclaimed album Psychopomp. She shared her story in 2018 in a viral New Yorker essay. Zahner's unflinching book-length memoir titled Crying in H Mart hit shelves a week ago today. Yay! After a short presentation by Zahner, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Some of you have already submitted your questions. Thanks very much. But if you have a question while she's reading or while we're talking, simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will send them to me. If you'd prefer to ask something a little more anonymously, you can also email clubbookmn at gmail.com or send a private message on Facebook to Clubbook. Hello. Welcome. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, I believe you're going to start today with a reading from your debut memoir, Crying in H Mart. Yes. All right. This passage is towards the end of the book. Um, it's during my honeymoon in Seoul when I'm visiting my Aunt Nami and her husband. Uh, who My Aunt Nami was my mother's older sister. 
On our final night in Seoul, Nami and Imobu took us to Samwon Garden, a fancy barbecue spot in Apgujong, a neighborhood my mom once described as the Beverly Hills of Seoul. We entered through the beautiful courtyard garden, its two man-made waterfalls flowing under rustic stone bridges and feeding the koi pond. Inside the dining room were heavy stone top tables, each equipped with a hardwood charcoal grill. Nami slipped the waitress 20,000 won, and our table quickly filled with the most exquisite banchan, sweet pumpkin salad, gelatinous mung bean jelly topped with sesame seeds and scallions, steamed egg custard, delicate knolls, bowls of nabak kimchi, wilted cabbage and radish, and salty rose-colored water. We finished the meal with naengmyeon, cold noodles you could order bibim mixed with gochujang or mul served in a cold beef broth. I chose the latter. Me too, I like mul naengmyeon, Nami said. Your amma also. This is our family style. He is bibim. She pointed at imobu. When the noodles arrived, she tapped her metal bowl with her spoon. This is Pyongyang style. She gestured back to Imabu's bowl. This is hamhung. Naengmyeon is a North Korean specialty where the cold climate and mountainous terrain are better suited to furrows of buckwheat and root vegetables than the paddy fields of rice that line the rural river valleys further down the peninsula. Nami was referring to its two largest cities, Pyongyang, North Korea's capital, less than 200 miles from Seoul, and Hamhung up the northeastern coast. Both styles of the cold noodle dish became popular in South Korea by way of Northerners who fled during the Korean War, bringing their reg regional preferences with them. The leaders of the two Koreas, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, would later share a bowl of mul naengmyeon at the inter-Korean summit. It was the first time a North Korean leader had crossed the 38th parallel since the end of the war more than 60 years earlier, a historic event that propped in long lines for naengmyeon restaurants across the country sparking a collective appetite for a dish seen as a promising symbol of peace. I tried to explain to Nami how much it meant to me to share food with her, to hear these stories, how I'd been trying to reconnect with memories of my mother through food, how Kay had made me feel like I wasn't a real Korean, what I was searching for when I cooked denjang jjigae and jatjuk on my own, the psychological undoing of what I felt had been my failure as a caretaker, the preservation of a culture that once felt so ingrained in me but now felt threatened. But I couldn't find the right words, and the sentences were too long and complicated for any translation app. So I quit halfway through and just reached for her hand, and the two of us went on slurping the cold noodles from the tart icy broth. Peter and I continued with our honeymoon. We visited Kwangjung Market in one of Seoul's oldest neighborhoods, squeezing past crowds of people threading through its covered alleys, a natural maze spontaneously joined and splintered over a century of accretion. We passed busy ajumas and aprons and rubber kitchen gloves, tossing knife-cut noodles in colossal bubbling pots for kalguksu, grabbing fistfuls of colorful namul from over-brimming bowls of bibimbap, standing over gurgling pools of hot oil, armed with metal spatulas in either hand, flipping the crispy side of stone-milled soybean pancakes, metal containers full of chutgal, salt-fermented seafood panchan, affectionately known as rice thieves because their intense salty flavor cries out for starchy neutral balance, raw pregnant crabs, floating belly up in soy sauce to show off the unctuous roe protruding from beneath their shells. Millions of minuscule peach-colored krill used for making kimchi or finishing hot soup with rice, and my family's favorite, crimson sacks of pollock roe, smothered in gochugaru, myeongnanchat. The pungent aroma reminded me of trips with my mother and her sisters to a high-end grocery on the basement floor of a department store in Myeongdong. An ajima in a cloth hair wrap and matching apron would call out, an extended toothpick skewered with different types of chukgal to try. 
The sisters would sample each and discuss, then have the winner wrapped in 50 layers of plastic until it was the size of a football for us to haul home. Sometimes mom would buy an extra suitcase just to bring it back to Eugene. And every time she served the row with a side of rice at home, a tiny pool of sesame oil dribbled over top, I would close my eyes and hear my aunt's in careful deliberation. From Seoul, Peter and I took a train south to Busan, South Korea's second largest city. A bottle of champagne was set out on the hotel bed with a note that read, Mr. and Mrs. Michelle, congratulations on your weeding. It rained all three days we were there, but undeterred, we bathed in the rooftop pools of the luxurious hotel Nami had booked us as a wedding present, the cold rain creating ripples in the water as we looked out at the East Sea. We visited Chagalchi Fish Market, the rain still beating down on the beach umbrellas and tarp awnings that made up its patchwork roof, dripping down on red plastic basins and bright turquoise colanders filled with the bounty of the sea, spraying piles of cockles and scallops still enclosed in their ribbed shells and long silvery belt fish hanging limply like neckties over a wooden pallet set out on the wet pavement. We brought back Hue from the market and set our takeout containers out on the white hotel bedspread. We ate slices of whitefish sashimi, Korean style, freshly killed, still chewy, wrapped in red leaf lettuce and dipped in samjang and gochujang with vinegar, washing it down with big bottles of cloud and shots of chamasol. We flew to Jeju Island and hiked to Cheongjiyeon waterfall, watching the water spume into a clear rocky pool beneath. We walked steep roads along walls of black basalt, eating through a bag of fresh tangerines, then along the beaches where the water was still too cold to swim. We ate even more seafood. Nakji bokum, stir-fried octopus, mayuntang, spicy fish stew, and the Jeju specialty, black pig barbecue, wrapped in sesame leaves. Thick strips of samgipsal sizzled over hot coals, clinging stubbornly to the wire grill as an ajima came to cut it into bite-sized pieces with a pair of kitchen scissors. I thought of my mother and her butane burner, wearing a blue summer dress with straps that tied over her shoulders, cooking pork belly som or grilling steaks and corn on the wooden deck that overlooked the property. When we finished, my father would, my father would collect our corn husks and as was his habit, hurled them joyously over the railing and out onto the lawn as my mother audibly groaned, mourning the month she'd be forced to witness them slowly decompose below. It's biodegradable, my father would bellow in defense, scanning the horizon, the firs and pines that rose out of the browning sunburnt grassy acreage. These were the places my mother had wanted to visit before she died, the places she'd wanted to take me to before our last trip to Korea was quarantined to a hospital ward, the last memories my mother had wanted to share with me, the source of the things she raised me to love, the taste she wanted me to remember, the feeling she wanted me to never forget. Wow, that's real. That's you wrote a beautiful memoir, not only to your mother, but of the descriptive language you use. It's so lovely and evocative. Thank you. And I will say too, as a food memoir, it totally made me hungry. Wonderful. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it served its purpose. It served its purpose. I really want to go to an H Mart. <laughs> you should. Um, I should. Is, is there one there in Washington County? Uh, not in Washington. Uh, actually, someone told me the other day there might be. But can you super briefly tell us about H Mart and its meaning and what it is? And for those who haven't yet picked up the book, and you totally should. Why should they go to an H Mart? What's H Mart? 
Um, H Mart is a grocery chain um, that specializes in Korean groceries, and uh, there are usually um, one or or a few in 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 larger cities with with larger Asian populations. And uh, when I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, there actually wasn't an H Mart. My mom and I went to a different Asian supermarket, but I think it wasn't until you know we we started taking some trips up to Beaverton near Portland, and there was an H Mart there, and you know. There was like a larger array of um, Korean groceries that my mother would delight in, and then uh, the the H Mart that I'm the most familiar with is the one in in Upper Darby and in Cheltenham, which is outside of Philadelphia, where I went to college in Bryn Mawr. And my mother would always take me there to sort of stock up on shin cup ramen and microwavable bowls of rice, and um, you know it was just her way of sort of making sure that I was cared for and, and leaving something behind for me. And it's become, you know, such a place of refuge for me uh, because it reminds me of my mother, and uh, for my mother it reminded her of her family. And you know, it's just like it, there you can find a lot of ingredients that you can't find in, in regular sort of grocery stores, and and so it's it's a it's a lot of possibility for for immigrants that that maybe they can't find in other places. That is so wonderful. It's so it's so cool. I have a random food question tied to that a little bit, which is um, just oh gosh, which one was it? Oh, so anyone who has read the book will know that Mong Chi is a big influence on your Korean cooking. She's a Korean YouTube. Um, Chef? Chef? Is that the word? She's a cook. She's a home cook. She's a, a vlogger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so someone was wondering if you've had the opportunity to meet her yet. I have. I've met her a few times. Um, we actually just did a book event together a few days ago, and that was lovely. We made apple samjang together. Um, but I met her first uh, at 92nd Street. I, she did a Q&A with a chef in New York named Huni Kin, who runs uh, two Korean restaurants called Hanjan and Tanji. And I had written this essay called Love, Loss and Kimchi, which is the sort of seed of this idea even before Crying in H Mart that was specifically about, you know, my relationship with her and, and how she had, her videos had sort of helped me through this really difficult time in my life. And um, it, it was called Love, Loss and Kimchi. And this was before it had even been published. And I gave her the essay and uh, I forgot that my contact information was actually on top. And so when I won Glamour Magazine's Essay of the Year in 2016, uh, she found out about it because I guess a lot of people were tagging her in it. And so she she called me and I was on tour at the time and, and I got a call from an unknown number and she's like, hi, it's Mom T. Like, I'm so proud of you. I feel like your mom. Uh, and so we kind of kept in touch ever since then. We did a video together in uh, a couple of years ago for Munchies. And then that was the day before my 30th birthday. And I told her, and so she invited me to her apartment and they actually celebrated my 30th birthday at Munchies apartment. And she made bulgogi and uh, I got to try all her different banchan and her kimchi. And it was just a, a really, really sweet time. She's been extremely warm and generous to me. And I'm sure, you know, she has so many fans that have had this like very, you know, personal uh, tie to her in, in so many different ways. There are a lot of Korean adoptees that have really, um, you know, felt close to her. There are a lot of people who've lost parents or, you know, spouses of Korean people that are sort of like grasping at straws. And, and she's helped so many people in very personal ways. And, and she's uh, so generous with her time. I'm very, very grateful to her. Yeah, that's so wonderful. And I, I know you said at one point, she said like, oh, I'm so proud. I feel like your mother. And with the recipes she shared with you and, and in 
sort of teaching you how to cook as you describe in your memoir, it does sound like she's had a little bit of somewhat of that role in a way, you know, like it's a very beautiful thing, you know, so what I'm, I'm curious, speaking of cooking. So in your memoir, you talk about learning to cook several Korean dishes that, you know, you didn't have the chance to learn from your mom or your aunts. How, how's your cooking today? Like, I'm sure you finished the book a while back, but how is it, how do you feel today about your cooking skills? Oh, I mean, I'm by no means like a chef, but you know, I've, 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 I'm, I'm pretty good at making a, f a few things and, um, yeah, I've certainly gotten a lot better over time and, and, and feel a lot more confident than when I, when I started, but, uh, it's something that I just really enjoy and, and have for a long time. And so, uh, it's something I always am, you know, trying to get better at. <laughs> for sure. That's great. I, okay, now back to, we've got food questions, we've got music questions, we've got book questions. I hope you're ready for all of it. I'm ready for it all. Awesome. Okay, first audience question we've got is, I've read and loved your essays. Uh, they said they've written some essays themselves, and so a memoir seems like a totally different beast entirely. What, they just want to know, what was your process like? Yeah, um, it was a long process. I feel like for initially, you know, I was lucky in some ways that it sort of began as two separate essays. I did um, this glamour essay and, and a lot of that sort of material and was repurposed and it was sort of the seed of this whole idea. And then Crying in H Mart was, it actually before, you know, it was a standalone essay. It was always the first chapter of the book. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a lot of free writing. And, and one thing that really helps me was I, um, tried to write a thousand words every day until I hit 90,000 words. And I just let a lot of really terrible writing come out and a lot of, you know, a lot for a lot of free thinking to happen and, and a lot of memory, you know, and, and that was helpful for conjuring a lot of these memories. And there was outlining and, um, yeah, just years and years of writing and, and revision. Um, and it happened in stages and, you know, I, I remember like before I wrote this book, like seeing a lot of authors t talk about the writing process in this way that was sort of cryptic. And now I, I totally get it because it is such a, it's such a haphazard process. There's no really great answer beyond that of just like, you know, I just showed up every day for a while and, and something eventually uh, formed, you know, and it was definitely wonderful to have a spectacular editor. And, and my husband was definitely a wonderful first reader and, and helped me uh, read the chapters, um, you know, so many times and, and helped me sort of like gain, gain the perspective of, of, you know, what it looks like outside of my brain. Um, so yeah, it was just a long process that took maybe, I would say it took three pretty concentrated years and like two sort of casual years. So maybe five years of, of writing and putting this together. Wow. Do you think your process was different than maybe other authors' processes just because of how much you were going through while, like, you know, some people sit out and they say, I'm gonna write a book. And, but for you, this is so personal and there's so much grief that you're living and working through while writing it. How, how did that affect your writing process or your need to get this book out there or? Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it was probably more um, helpful than harmful. I think that I, I had such a sense of urgency about getting um, this out there. And it, so much of it was also just navigating and uh, trying to understand 
my feelings and and what had happened and piece together everything that I had been through and also try to get a better sense of what you know the the characters in the book um where they were coming from you know for for a lot of the book I I spent you know pretty angry at some of the people in this book and you know that's not really um an interesting thing to put out into the world it's interesting to find you know both the qualities and the flaws and what um, maybe make someone make bad decision and, and, and to have compassion for all of the people and also make sure to, you know, have a critical eye on yourself and as, as the protagonist and, and, you know, be honest about the things that you, you know, made mistakes in. And so that was all really important to me and just, um, yeah, but I, I feel like that helped me in a lot of ways because I was so obsessed with what uh, with piecing together with what had sort of happened that that finishing it was um I think almost easier than if I had so much room to explore like something like fiction you know mm. yeah well that's a great answer thank you for that insight um someone wants to know too that they realize a memoirist's own memories are the basis for this kind of book but did you do any kind of outside research for it? Mm, I read some books on like the history of, of Korean cuisine. Um, one book that I read was just called Korean Cuisine. <laughs> and I can't even see the, the, the author name from my bookshelf, but, but that was a book that I, I really enjoyed that sort of like went into some of the historical context of, of food, which didn't really make it too, too far into it, but definitely informed a lot of the sort of things I was going to be writing about um, I did take two trips to Korea, uh, one in um, December of 2017, I spent six weeks in Seoul, and then in May, uh, I spent three weeks um, there writing the book, and that was really informative, and, and some of the events that happened on these sort of trips uh, kind of were things that were happening in real time in the book and, and made their way in there. Um, and I did talk to my father, and I did talk to my aunt a bit about um, some of their memories and, and incorporated those as well. Great. Another question we have is, was it a challenge to write about, you write about people you're close to who are still living and who can read the book. Was that a challenge at all, whether it's writing about them in a good light or a bad light? Um, yes and no. I honestly, it was more of a challenge to write about things that I, I felt my my mother would not have wanted me to write about. There was a, a bit of like a, a nervousness about, you know, is this, is this my story to tell and what would she think of it? And would she feel ashamed of, of me bringing, bringing this up? But I also felt like, you know, that is kind of the role of an artist, you know, is that I had to sort of push um, against that. I had to, you know, and, and I feel like when I initially submitted some of the book, there, there were questions that the editor were asking that, that you know, really required me to sort of talk, find, find a graceful way to, to talk about some of the stuff that, that is incorporated in the book. And so it was about trying on like ways to not say it, ways to say it and, and finding a sort of in-between uh, uh, of, you know, divulging, but not, not too far uh, in a way that, that makes the story make sense, but doesn't... Um, I don't know, maybe it's handled gently. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Would you say, was that the hardest part of writing the book or what was the hardest part about writing the book? Um, 
I mean, I would say the hardest part about writing a book in general is that there's just no skipping steps, you know, and I think that, you know, as someone who tends to work quickly and, and work on many projects, um, you know, I had a sort of uh, cockiness going into it that I, that I was I was very humbled by the process of writing a book and realized that there is really no no skipping steps in the process and that there's just it's a lot of just doing the work and trudging through it and you know just complete agony at your own sort of lack and, and stupidity so uh, I feel like the hardest part was that um, certainly there were some some chapters in the book that were emotionally very very difficult for me to write um, the most difficult chapter for me to write was living and dying, which was um, when my, after we learned that my mother's cancer was terminal, we all went uh, for a trip to Seoul for her to say goodbye to her family and, and her home country. And, you know, it just felt like it was going to be this wonderful, beautiful trip. Um, and it just ended up so horrible. You know, we just ended up being, uh, she got really sick. She went in septic shock. She was in the hospital for three weeks. It was looking like she wasn't going to make it. And, uh, Reliving that experience was definitely a, a very difficult thing. Um, and, you know, it was really important for me to like go into the real horror of watching um, someone you love's body deteriorate and, and their health fail them. And, um, you know, I just, I wanted to go really deep into that. And I certainly had some hesitation of what was like too gross or intense to share, but um, ultimately, I felt like that was sort of why I needed to share it because I had never seen it before. And um, it was a very real thing that I went through that I almost felt this need to let people know uh, what it looked like. And so uh, that's, that is, that was, that was definitely a challenge that chapter. That totally makes sense. But I do think, yeah, I, I would say as someone who has not seen illness that closely, but has had like grandparents and stuff like that. Like, made me feel seen on behalf of like my mom and others who have been in that caretaker role so I like yeah thank you for sharing that um have people who've been in that caregiver position reached out since the book has been published and said like anything about their response to the book no. Yeah, I've gotten I've gotten a, a bunch of responses to the book that are, uh, you know, feel very profound and, and um, have, have moved me deeply. And yeah, I mean, I think that that was just like such an important, you know, part of important part of my life was was that living that way, you know, um, for for six months. And, and it was just really important for me to share. I, I received a, a really lovely letter from someone who actually survived cancer and, and talked about how she actually felt, um, you know, she felt such a, an ache for her partner who actually had to, you know, live with her as a partner. And she almost felt like, you know, that role is almost harder than um, being the patient in a way because, and I don't know if I, I think that she's being very generous, but uh, I think that um, she was saying that, you know, like watching him feel so helpless and, and, and you know, unable to, to, you know, find your, your role or whatever, uh, is, is maybe just as challenging as being a patient in, in some ways, but she wrote me such a beautiful letter that I'm, I'm just butchering right now. But uh, yeah, I've had a, a lot of really wonderful feedback about it. It's been, it's been really nice. I will say, I mean, that reaction of, of seeing how hard it is to be the caretaker does speak to how well you tell your own story. Cause there, I mean, it, it does, it sounds incredibly hard, but you handle it with, 
it's very it's a very well told story everyone go get it um <laughs> so another question we have um is we have a lot of questions so oh that was one i wanted to ask though too so we talked about the hardest part of writing the memoir what was the most cathartic part hmm I, I, I don't know about, I don't know about cathartic, but there were, there were certainly um, sections of the book that were a real joy to write. You know, a lot of my, my sort of childhood memories and the, the first third of the book was, was a real joy to write. I really enjoyed writing the chapter, where's the wine and, and just remembering uh, my, my sort of teenage years, even though they were um, you know, some some of it, it is a real regret for me, and, and I have a lot of guilt about my adolescence and, and sort of what I put my parents through. But, um, you know, I think I was able to sort of finally forgive myself for that time through through writing about it. And parts of it are just so funny to, you know, it's, it's so fun to write about yourself as a teenager because you're just like such a character at that time. You know, you feel things so deeply and you are just embarrassed by the most like minuscule things that, you know, your parents do and, you know, everything is devastating and you're heartbroken all the time and <laughs> jealous all the time. And, you know, that sort of like propensity for feeling is just like inspiring, you know, especially like now that I'm in my thirties, I'm like, God, to like feel that much again, is just sounds so, so simultaneously exhausting and like fun in a way. Um, so much drama. So it was really fun to write about those years of my life because I just haven't thought, you know, I haven't like delved into that in a long time. And just remembering like the self-seriousness that I had as like a young, you know, as a budding musician and just obsessing over making, um, you know, MS Paint flyers that I would hang up around town for like my Cosmic Pizza show, like, uh, was just like a real delight to like write about and remember and, and you know, just see myself in this way of like, these enduring qualities that I, uh, that I had as a, as an adolescent, you know, like, and at the time everyone thought I was like insane, you know, because they're like, what are you doing? And I, and, and one thing that's been really fun since the book came out and I've, I've gotten a lot more attention as an, as an artist was just seeing people from my high school being like, yeah, I remember when you were doing that in high school and it's pretty great that it worked out for you because like, I think that no one really thought that it was going to maybe, but I, I definitely was always like, I had a real work ethic about um, my creative work from a young age and, and, and getting to write about that was, I guess, cathartic in a way, because it was, it was also a wonderful feeling. Cause like, in some ways it was like, I showed you, you know what I mean? Because my yeah. mother also just like really never believed that, you know, she felt like it was her duty to sort of protect me from this lifestyle that was definitely not going to pan out. And then to live, live my life now as, as a writer and a musician is, is, um, you know, pretty, pretty wild and pretty full circle. And, and it's sort of sort of nice to look back on those moments where, where no one really believed you. <laughs> right, I mean, especially when you say like people from your high school are reaching out, like that's right, suckers. Like, <laughs> but like, that's very cool. And it's, it, does, it, it surprises me when you said that in writing a memoir, you realized there were no shortcuts because you don't seem like the kind of person who takes shortcuts anyway. Like. <laughs> I'm going to transition into talking about Japanese breakfast um, and a great question we have here from someone watching right now, thank you, is um, like how did Psychopomp come into being at this time in your life? Like you were a musician and we see that in the book long before you gained Jimmy Fallon level success to use your phrase. <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's talk about Psychopomp. 
Sure. Yeah. Before Japanese Breakfast, I was in a number of bands, but the the most serious one was called Little Big League. And when my mom got sick, um, we ha we were. <laughs> it's pretty wild, actually. In October of 2016, the first week of October of 2016, I got married. The second week, my second album as Little Big League came out. And the third week, my mom passed away. So that record was definitely like, you know, the least of my concerns. And, um, you know, just got totally, you know, I wasn't able to do like any press, not even that anyone cared about it. But, you know, it just got kind of like swept under. And, um, you know, the band's like, you know, the band wasn't doing so well. <laughs> no one, you know, we were, we were, we were paying to play for many years and I was 25 years old and I had really just kind of, my mom had just passed away and I had to take a sort of cold, hard look at my life and say, you know, it's time to, to put this to bed. Like, it's not going to work out for you. You've, we've worked for, you know, from 16 to 25, I was always playing in bands and playing shows. And I just felt like if it hadn't happened for me, uh, it wasn't going to happen anymore. That being said, you know, I stayed in Eugene um, for six months after my mom died from like October to April or October to, to mid-March and uh, to sort of help my dad pack up the house and, and make sure that he was okay. And in, in sort of breaks from that, I would go to this little shed on the bottom of the property. Uh, my parents, you know, had, had five acres of, of land sort of outside of, in the woods of Oregon in, of Eugene. And I would write about the experience, you know, I would write this, I wrote this record um, called Psychopomp, which is the first, and, and I had this like, you know, stupid little side project name called Japanese Breakfast that I, you know, had been, you know, recording like crappy little demos and uploading onto the internet. And so I was like, I'll just put it out under this name. And I was writing about, you know, this, a lot of the same experiences that are in the book about, you know, my dog who was confused and, and didn't know where her owner had gone. I, I wrote about my mother's wedding ring that I was wearing and, and how heavy the physical weight of that was and, and, and how, how heavy the psychological weight of that was. Um, and then I recruited some friends and my husband to, to play on the album and, and worked on it. My, my husband and I moved to New York and I finished mixing and producing the record uh, in Crown Heights for a few months. And I just thought that um, over the course of uh, 10 years, I would maybe sell 500 records. And I convinced a small label uh, to put it out and it just it just blew up uh, and of course it was the record that I was like explicitly said you know I'm not going to tour on this I don't have any real ambition for it mm -hmm. and of course that was the record that that really resonated with people for some reason. You, I mean you you sound like you're in disbelief about that. Well I think it's because you know I just had never happened for me and I had always felt like everything I did was brilliant and, and I don't know why why it took so long <laughs> other people kind of felt that way you know it, and it is just like it's a real you know I have so many friends who are who I think of as far more talented than me that that, that haven't found as much success as me as, as a musician and you know it's a real there's a real lottery type element that comes with with um, creative success and so I that, that is not lost on me at all and, and it was uh you know a real it's a very lucky moment for me that 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 record um sort of took off and, and then I am where I am now very cool I mean I think it's yeah it's very vulnerable, very real. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that it resonates. Um, and I know we have some Japanese breakfast listeners watching. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, some, a few other questions about that. For instance, someone wants to know about 
Japanese breakfast touring plans. It's early, but you do have a new album, Jubilee. Do you want to talk about your, can you talk about your albums a little bit? Yeah, um, my new record, Jubilee, it comes out on June 4th. Um, it's our third album. And we do have a tour scheduled. We have um, tour dates in late July and in the fall, starting in late July through the late summer and fall. And we're just hoping for the best. And it seems like uh, it, they might happen. I don't know, we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, they're they're booked and they're on, on our website and, and social media. And I, I hope to, to see you there. <laughs> well, I will say, I looked it up and for anyone wondering, Japanese breakfast is going to be at first. first out. Yeah. Have you, we played, yeah. We played seventh street entry, maybe like 10 times. <laughs> so it's pretty, it's a pretty, it's a great feeling to get to, to finally play first half. I'm, I'm very excited. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. It's probably not the biggest laurel in the Japanese breakfast crown, but it's a big laurel it's it's certainly a big laurel um Minneapolis like has a really special place in my heart because I uh, my my college bandmates uh live there and so we always have a wonderful time with them and they've you know there there are people I, I used to be in a band called Post Post in, at Brimlar and and the drummer and the keyboard player are are are, in, are engaged or maybe even married by now um but yeah we used to be in like a an all-girl band in, in college and um, the two of them moved to Min moved back to Minneapolis because the drummer is, is from there and um, yeah we used to always like crash on their on their floor uh, and so they've like seen me grow like so much so like I feel like Minneapolis I always think of Minneapolis as one of those special places for me because like my my old bandmates li live there and they've seen me like you know grow as a band and, and they're very proud of me I think and I'm very proud of them and um yeah I always get I love like getting to spend time with them and, and hanging out with in Minneapolis oh that's wonderful <laughs> it, it totally answered the question I was that someone else asked about and they they acknowledge it's a very self-indulgent question but they said what top of mind impressions do you have in the Minneapolis scene so that yeah yeah their, their band is called Strange Relations and and you should check them out and and uh I I unfortunately don't know too much about the Minneapolis uh music scene beyond their band but their band is great and and they are the music scene uh, in Minneapolis for me so <laughs> Love it. That perfectly answered the question. Very judiciously. No, just <laughs> That's lovely of any connection to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are questions we have from our audience. Um, and these are going a little bit, we're going a little random now, but uh, someone wants to know, and this is a great question I always love to ask, is what kind of books are on Japanese breakfast nightstand? Right now, um, I I have to be honest and, and and say that I am not reading much, but I have so many books that I want to read. Um, that uh, you know, just because I've been busy doing doing press and stuff, and I am like my my brain is just goop, and I have to just watch uh, Game of Thrones for like the twelfth time in order to to get through the day. But um, there's so many great books that are coming out uh, right now that I'm really excited to read. Um, two books that I loved. Uh, that I, I read most recently was Charles Yu's um, Interior Chinatown mm -hmm. and um, Mega Mujumadar's uh, A Burning, I really loved. Um, books that I'm really excited to read that are on my nightstand but have have yet to be really cracked is um, My Year Abroad by Chang Rei Li, 
Um, uh, what what what's the George Saunders book? A swim in the pond in the rain. I love George Saunders, and I can't read. I can't wait to read that book. And I've also I have practiced a little bit because it's it's pretty um, easy to read in, in passages. Is uh, the friend Leibowitz reader? I've been really enjoying. Very cool. Do you have to? I'm wondering, were there any memoirs or books at all, or? poems, songs, whatever, that served as a guide or an inspiration when you wrote your memoir? Absolutely. Um, I love, you know, because I feel like the, the the book touches on so many different themes. I, I, and I never really read much memoir, to be honest, um, before writing this book. And then I read a lot of memoir. Um, but, you know, I read, I read, um, I really love Richard Ford's um, Between Them, which is a, a memoir about his parents. I love MFK mm -hmm. Fisher's um, food writing, uh, in particular, the gastronomical me and consider the oyster. I love Anthony Bourdain's A Cook's Tour. You know, he's just a fantastic food writer. Ruth Reichel's Tender at the Bone. I love um, Han Kang's um, uh, The Vegetarian. Oh. Han Kang, yeah. The Vegetarian, uh, which, which, you know, is, is explores the sort of more menacing um, side of, of food and food writing. And, and I feel like that was really informative to me when I was sort of writing the, the middle section of the book because I, you know, it was important to me to sort of express the joys of food and also the real sort of horror um, and terror of, of food, I, I guess, when, when dealing with illness and calorie counting and, and combating chemotherapy symptoms. Um, so yeah, those books were all really formative. Um, Ray Lee's Native Speaker, Alexander Chi's uh, How to Write a Non-Biographical Novel, uh, of course, Joan Didion's uh, books about grief, Year of Magical Being. Um, I read, I reread Nabokov's Speak Memory, which is, you know, one of the most beautiful memoirs of all time. And uh, yeah, those are some of the books that I was Just a few. Just a few. <laughs> I read a lot to, to prepare, you know, and I was like, oh, this is research. It was really just maybe avoiding writing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you should give yourself more credit than that. That was a beautiful bibliography of inspiration. So um, what was it like for you to, a lot of this book, and I think we said something like this in the description, is about exploring your Korean Americanness. I'm wondering, you know, like, what's that what response have you got gotten to the book as far as that goes? And then your identity, like all of our identities is constantly developing. So like, where do you, you know, what have you gained from writing this book or how has your perspective shifted on your identity as a Korean American? Yeah, I would say I was probably the most uh, afraid of the American reader because I felt like they were bound to the medical, and I think I, I had some anxiety being race um, that maybe my experience didn't align with anyone's or that I was going to like, um, people were gonna feel like I was trying to like claim this role as some sort of like cultural ambassador and, and you know, they might feel like I got certain things wrong. Um, but the response is so overwhelmingly positive and, and particularly from the Korean American reader. And so I, I'm so relieved. Uh, and I think that I just learned um, from that experience that everyone really feels like this ownership of identity and, and um, culture in a way. And that I think that even people who are full Korean American, you know, I've had a lot of comments, like, oh, you're more Korean from parents who are 
um, with Korean. But, you know, I, I was really lucky, lucky. I was really privileged to get to go to Korea every other summer. It was a huge part of my life. And um, I know a lot of Korean Americans that, that didn't get to have that experience or Korean adoptees that, that don't have that same kind of like bound to their culture. Um, so you think I just realized like everyone has these sort of questions of, of belonging and that no one really feels entirely um, sure of their identity in a way. And I think that that's very much a part of human experience, part of the Korean American experience. And um, yeah, that's been a, a real relief, I guess. Well, that's a beautiful answer. That's Thank you. Was there anything you realized while writing the memoir that surprised you? I think I just developed like a much better understanding of my mother and maybe what she was going through as a young adult um, in this way that I hadn't considered before. I think even like in learning how to cook Korean food um, after she passed, I realized that, you know, my mom probably did not know how to do any of this stuff herself either you know and that she also probably really struggled to learn how to make these things initially and like how difficult it must have been for her um to have been away from home and like especially back then was you know phone calls to to you know it's not like it was now like i i, I found all of another thing i will say that i i've, I've totally forgot until this moment which is funny because i've done so many interviews about this book and i've totally forgotten it People have asked me about research and stuff like that. I'm always like, mm, I didn't do much. But uh, I, I did have all of these letters that I found um, and cleaning out my parents' house and uh, letters from my parents. Um, and actually, the second chapter used to start with a letter to my mother. Um, and, and it got revised out of it. Just too bad. That's another good thing. Of like, There was a really great letter that used to be in the book but didn't quite fit in. Um, and, and so it got taken out. But um yeah, I guess like, you know, I, I realized like obviously phone calls were so expensive uh, to Korea, you know, because you didn't have like Skype and like you know, WeChat calls. And so like it would cost like, you know, an exorbitant amount of money just to talk for a few minutes. And so she didn't get to keep in, it, was, it wasn't easy for her to keep in contact with her family and how, how did that must have been. I think so much what I realized, you know, a lot of what my aunt, my mother's older sister talked about was my, she kept mentioning your mom. I think the reason why your mom was because she missed Korea, or I think she did this because she missed Korea. She wanted to come to Korea. And I was just like, I don't think she was like as obsessed with Korea as you're letting it on. Like, that's like your answer for everything. And then yeah. as I thought about it, I was like, you know, maybe it's just because she never led on to you. She never led on to me and she never led on to my father that she was feeling homesick or that she missed her family so much because she didn't want us to feel like she didn't want to be with us or that, to have like concern for that. So she probably withheld that from us. And then who is she going to talk to about it and talk to her sister in Korea about it? And so all the conversations it's having is, is rooted in her sort of homesickness because that's the person she calls to talk about that kind of thing. So for my aunt, what she knows about my mother is, is, sort of totally different kind of information than what I know about my mom. Um, and that was definitely something something new that I learned um, about her and, and, and really put into perspective um, a little bit more of like what she was going through during that time and, and was like a, a fun part uh, to kind of relearn and, and um, about her in a way. Yeah, that's you talk about that a little bit in the book too, I think, about how you are sort of seeking out information from other people to piece together maybe she kept 10 percent a different 10 percent from each exactly of them. yeah that was a very 
beautiful summary of what it is to know. I mean, that was unique to your mother, but also to, to people. And I'm sure to the child Absolutely. writing memoir. Absolutely, yeah. I do want to know what, in the book, you talk a lot about how like you and your family and especially your mother would follow your cravings. And so maybe you'd eat something for like three weeks straight and then it's like on to the next thing. So my question is, what are you craving eating right now? <laughs> Do you have any- yeah. Um, it can be Korean. It can be, does it have to be, you know, whatever you, yeah. What have we been craving? Um, what have we been eating? <laughs> Noodles. I do like, this isn't a Korean thing. I've just been like, I feel like the pandemic has just brought out the monster and all of this. And uh, I feel like eating pasta like most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's raining here right now. And I'm guessing a lot. Yeah, of- that's like great pasta weather. Uh, but yeah, I feel like I could eat pasta at any point in time. Like <laughs> not not relevant to the book at all, but I do, I do love pasta. <laughs> I mean, not relevant, except that there are noodles on the book. I mean, like, there are noodles. The are a noodle, right? true. I, I can make this a sequitur. Don't, I did eat noodles today. I ate this type of noodle, actually. You did? Um, yeah, these are like somen noodles. I guess they're not called somen. So, so, they're called somyeon in Korean. I think in Japanese they're called somen. And they're like thin white noodles. I made uh, I made something that's actually mentioned in the book called um, kolbengi mukim, which is a seasonal. Uh, like uh cold noodles that you eat with with uh with beers <laughs> it's like a drinking snack <laughs> i love it that's awesome i made that for the first time today actually so no uh, it turned out yeah it turned out pretty well i don't think i like um sea snail very much but um my husband really liked it cool <laughs> hey that's really fun it was at his request at his request. Well, that, that ties into two other questions, which is first a book question, then another food question. Um, did you have any like say over the cover? And if you didn't, I mean, what were your impressions when you first saw the cover? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I should post the old covers uh, or the, uh, the alternative cover options at some point in time. Um, I was really torn. The first two I thought were really bad and I was like kind of horrified because um the first one I I had all these really beautiful pictures that I thought would make for really great um book covers that were you know these sort of old but my mom was like I you know my mom is very beautiful and um I know everyone says that about their mom but my mom is actually and um like uh I have my mom like could have been a model and like and she she had all these really beautiful photos of her from when she was younger that I thought might make a great um book cover in the same way that Psychopomp's album cover is her and her friends um when they were in their 20s and so I sent them over and, and some photos from my childhood and and they the first one was like this depiction it was like me with an umbrella as a child like illustrated with like different types of food falling and it looked kind of like like um like cloudy with a chance of meatballs or something and I was like I don't think that this is like fitting at all like some of the book is like really intense and very adult and like this really like makes it look like a like a like a children's book 
So that was no, there was like, um, there's a lot of karaoke in the book. And so I think that um, they, they did like a karaoke screen that just like looked awful um, initially. <laughs> Not to lie, the, the, I don't. I don't even know. I'm. I'm. I'm pretty sure it's all by the same artist. But like, you know, initially, like it was. I don't know if that always happens. But the next round um, was. I think that this was from the second round, and it was either this or um, there were there were two. It was white, and it was a photograph of two scallions and a pair of chopsticks laid over them. And I really liked it. And um, it was a totally different vibe. And it was like two scallions and a pair of chopsticks. And it formed this kind of, I don't know if anyone will pick this up, but like this kind of forms like an H, you know? Oh. And so like, yeah, yeah. So it, it with, the, with the scallion ones, it was just scallions that spelled out an H and then it said March. But I was really nervous because I was like, I don't want people to just think it says crying in March. And the, and the title is obviously very important to me. And if someone didn't pick up that, that it was an H, like I didn't want people to think it was crying in March. Um, but yeah, my, everyone I talked to, I was like so sold on the scallions for a really long time. And then everyone I talked to was like, I think that the noodles are better. I asked a bunch of people. Um, and then like, I would say 80% of them were really into the noodles. My wow. agent was really into the noodles and it did feel like, and in retrospect, it feels like a more like literary, like broader, um, book cover. And I, and I really love it. And I'm, I'm glad we went with this, but at the time, I think I just really, um, I just really, I really associate um, scallions with with H Mart uh, more, more than noodles in a way. So I, I was unsure for for a brief period of time, but I'm you know I'm glad that we have this now. Well, I'm very glad it went with one that you feel connected to instead of the cloudy one because clearly, <laughs> like yeah. so meaningful to you too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and she's a she's a Korean um, artist too, Knock Him. Uh, she she did she's done so many great. Um, Book covers and I was like I really wanted her to work on the uh, on the book cover and, and I'm really really glad that that she got to do it so. cool. and did such a fantastic job. I'm hearing from our commenters the people watching online that most people did in fact yes pick up on that it's an H so oh, okay good <laughs> and I'm but initially I do think initially that um it, this one used to just say Mart, and I was really worried that they wouldn't pick it up. I think that if it didn't say Mart, that they wouldn't know, but you know, if it didn't say H Mart, that they wouldn't know, but. Yeah, well, I have maybe one, maybe two questions to end on, but I'm, I'm gonna ask this one last, I think, because we've had it a few times, which is just, although first I'll say, someone is saying that you and your husband have an adorable looking dynamic, and it looks like you're doing like an, <laughs> Our tiny desk concert, which <laughs> is very, <laughs> and I just thought you'd like knowing that. <laughs> oh, good. Um, very nice and, man. Yeah, and so a couple. So someone wants to know if this book got turned into a movie. Who would you pick to play you? My answer was yesterday. I said Scarlett Johansson or Emma Stone. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I don't know why people ask me that because like, I don't know of, um, I never, I, I, I don't know of any half Korean actresses, you know? So I think it would have to be, um, a, a new young budding starlet. I, I don't know of any, uh, uh, yeah, half Korean actresses out there. And I've definitely thought about it. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know of any, um, so I would have, who are like, you know, in there would be in their like early to mid twenties to take that 
role. But um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, if it were to be made into a movie, we would just have to find, find someone, find someone new. Well, I have to say with the way that you seem to make your dreams come true and with how hard you work, I was picturing like, I was like, well, why couldn't she play it? <laughs> oh God, I'm too know. old. <laughs> so, well, I'm too old and I hate acting. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. We are, I am, and I know a lot of people out there are so excited for whatever you have dreamed up next. Um, thank you for sharing this wonderful work with us. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And again, for those of us in the Twin Cities, September 19th, first Ave. Woo! So, all right, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you, Kaylin. Thank you, Club Book. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great night. That wraps up our Washington County Library event with Michelle Zahner. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Ian Manuel. Sentenced to life in prison for a crime committed at the age of 13, Ian Manuel gained justice after 26 long years of incarceration. His story has been told before, but never in his own words. My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption, hits shelves May 4th. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.